This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast. And we've got a bumper episode for you today. So I'm going to be delving into some of the sneaky tactics of energy companies who are hiking your direct debits. And I'll also be looking at the latest figures on how much we're all borrowing to cope with that cost of living crisis that we're talking about so much. And this week, we're also joined by Danny Houston, who will be here with all the markets news. Hi, Laura. Yes, I'm going to be looking at all of those calls for a windfall tax on the oil companies and at the impact that Amazon's results had on US markets. And of course, the big theme this week is rate hikes, not just with the Bank of England decision, but also the Fed in the United States and the central bank in Australia. And if that wasn't enough, I'm going to be doing the first in my new mini series looking at how to get the most from your bank accounts and credit cards. So this week, I'm going to be looking at the best bank accounts that come with free perks. And we've also got Tom Sieber on with an interview with the Jupiter Green Investment Trust. But first, Danny, let's delve into the markets news and start with all of that talk of rate hiking. Yeah, I mean, markets have been generally subdued, not just this week, but honestly, for the last couple of weeks, as investors really anticipate the latest decision on interest rates, not just, as we've said, from the US Federal Reserve, but also the Bank of England and kicking us all off in Australia, the first rate hike in a decade. Now, let's focus on the states uh, where a half a percentage point rise is widely expected. So, it's kind of almost an open secret, really, at this point. So the attention really is going to be focused not on how much that rate hike is, but any guidance around the pace of future increases and whether the recent surprise dip in US GDP has any impact on the Fed's thinking, because it really did catch a lot of people on the hop. And a lot of people are really concerned that hiking rates will lead to recession. Now, if history is any guide, uh, rate rises are likely to make life more difficult for investors. Now, looking at the 10-year Treasury yields still running well below inflation, the bond market does seem to signal that the US economy is strong enough to cope with gradual tightening. There's lots of talk that if if it does wobble, then the Fed will quickly ease back. But stock market investors are a little less confident, particularly because the hawkish rhetoric that has been coming out of the Fed of late has sort of really changed. And also because history does tell us that even if the US economy can deal admirably with a higher cost of money, financial markets might not fare as well. Now, think about all the money that's been thrown at markets over the last couple of years. Investors thinking, you know, this is the only game in town if I want a decent return or, in fact, any kind of return on their investment. But if savers start to get better returns on risk-free cash, then that drags some money out of markets You've also got, and we're seeing an awful lot of this, investors balking from growth stocks, particularly those stocks which are failing to deliver on the stratospheric growth outlooks that many investors have come to expect. So they're really starting to look a little overpriced. And, you know, if you just think about that meme stock craze, it was only months ago. There are plenty of analysts considering that the environment might now be ripe for a market stumble, but inflation has to be dealt with, not just for consumers. We talk a lot about the rising cost of living, and we're going to be talking about that an awful lot more, but also for companies. Now, there's barely an earnings update at the moment where there isn't a warning about trouble ahead. And certainly, In the UK, we are expecting the Bank of England to deliver another rate increase. Laura, it it seems pretty much priced in at the moment. Yeah, I think everyone's factoring. um, So as we're recording this on Wednesday, the Bank of England is making a decision um, on Thursday about the next rate hike. But I think everyone is basically factored in that they're going to increase rates and now it's just by how much. So whether they move up by a quarter of a percent or a half a percent. 
But let's move on to more company-specific stuff in markets. We've got an update on Morrison's takeover deal, haven't we, Danny? Yes, we have. Now, this is something that lots of people have been talking an awful lot about, a £7 billion deal to snap up the supermarket. Um, It looks like we are now just weeks away from the deal finally getting that final rubber stamp. The buyer, Clayton Dubillier and Rice, has agreed to sell 87 petrol stations. Now, that is to deal with concerns from the UK's competition's watchdog. It had warned that the takeover could result in higher prices for consumers at 121 locations because, of course, CDR also owns the Motor Fuel Group, which has a huge number of forecourts, 921 to Morrison's 339. Now, the CMA have said they're now happy with the fix that has been presented, saying that it will be enough to preserve competition. And this approval does avoid a full-blown takeover investigation. So as I say, a final decision on the deal is now potentially just weeks away, expected around June the 9th. But of course, CDR might well be wondering what on earth they've got themselves into at the moment with the food inflation soaring and competition to keep prices down by supermarkets really in full swing. We've had the latest British Retail Consortium figures out today suggesting that supermarkets have made something of a dent in keeping inflation down, particularly when it comes to fresh food. But shop prices generally rose at their fastest rate in more than a decade last month. And as I say, that is creating a really challenging environment. And Boohoo, the online clothing retailer, is far from immune. We get loads of Boohoo deliveries through our door. Laura, do you uh, (laughs) subscribe to their particular brand of fashion? I think I'm a bit old for Boohoo. I think it's time to admit that. Um, So no, I don't. And my daughter, thankfully, is not of the age where she can actually order clothes for herself. So no. No, well, customers, their customers are being more fickle than they used to be with their purchases. Um, and, And certainly my kids, I'm telling them to think hard about where they're spending their cash. You know, they've only got so much pocket money, only stretches so far. What Boohoo is seeing is more people are sending more stuff back. Delivery delays are making overseas operations less efficient. Demand is weakening. And just generally, it's costing a whole lot more to run the business. Profits have slumped despite a 14% jump in sales on the year. But there's been things like a reduction in air freight capacity. Shipping prices have gone up. Returns have jumped. And it is having to deal with those rising prices. It has said that it will do all that it can to cushion its value-conscious consumer from the price hikes as long as it can. But just like with the supermarkets, many retailers might go for sales volumes over profits, which will lead to further market compression. It's also at this point worth mentioning Jules, which said today, Wednesday, that increased promotions and reduced demand for full-priced goods has significantly impacted on the group's margins. Now, shares plummeted to an all-time low following the update, which included an announcement that the current chief executive won't be staying on to help the business refocus to deal with dwindling concessionary spend. And while we're talking retail, I've got to mention Amazon, you know, the daddy of all online retailers. When it posted results last week, there was a huge shockwave. It posted its first quarterly loss since 2015. But crucially, it said that not only was growth slowing, but it expected that to continue. And that disappointment from Amazon and other tech mega caps resulted in April being the worst month for the Nasdaq since 2008. And it's not just retailers in this particular boat. J.D. Weatherspoon shares dropped after the pub chain said that virus woes have been replaced by considerable pressures on costs as a new source of concern. People might still want to go to the pub, but how often will they go to the pub? Now, there are some people that say, you know, because J.D. Weatherspoon sort of at the value end of things that it might actually 
grab some of the uh, the drinkers that that other um, pubs might not be able to keep hold of because of rising prices but it is going to be pretty tricky for a lot of people and I'm just going to round up with um, travel I know you've been abroad already this year I have indeed and I have more trips planned which is no surprise to anyone who is a regular listener and knows my love of holidays well it seems that people are still keen to do as much as they can with what they have and that is something which has been obvious by the 542% increase in air traffic announced by Wizz Air last month 542% i mean that is a stellar hike but although its share price went up it was actually British Airways owner IAG that enjoyed the biggest bump because there was also a survey from UBS which suggested that travel spend over the next year is expected to bounce back to within a hair's breadth of pre-pandemic levels. But queues and cancellations are not a good look for an airline and British Airways certainly fell into that during the Easter getaway. We are expecting results from them later this week. And we do know that the BA boss is expected to face some pretty tough questions about how he is going to deal with all the issues that the airline's been facing. And while we're kind of talking about international stuff, we've had some warnings from Chinese fast food company Yum China about the impact of the latest lockdown over there. Now, obviously, not many people listening to this are going to be directly invested in this company. But I think what's interesting is what they're saying about Chinese markets, because there are a lot of worries about China growth at the moment, aren't there? Yeah, and although people might not have heard of Yum China, they certainly will have heard of the restaurants that they operate in China, Pizza Hut and Kentucky Fried Chicken, just among two of them in the world's largest consumer market. And as you say, there's real concern about how China is faring. And I picked this out because Yum China have said that this particular COVID wave has actually been more severe in terms of the impact on business than the initial outbreak. It is implementing austerity measures. And that is going to have a knock on because not only are sales and profit margins being squeezed, but it is now looking back at spending on things like advertising, story models. It's renegotiating rents and basically cutting down on the amount of products that it is selling on its menu. And just generally across China, consumer sentiment is worsening. And it used to be that people would say that if the United States sneezed, then the world would catch a cold. Well, right now, the world is looking very much, it has been for for a number of years, towards China for growth. And that growth has really been impacted by this no COVID policy, which is in place at the moment. So there is a real concern about its future economic health. And so then back on home soil, the headlines at the start of this week were all about talk of a windfall tax on oil companies, um, which we've heard a bit of talk of before. But the fact that BP reported soaring profits off the back of oil and gas price rises has not helped their cause and has started those rumours of that windfall tax starting up again. Yeah, and I'm not going to get into the politics of a windfall tax because there have certainly been enough people jumping up and down and shouting about that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the numbers really have played into this rhetoric because BP reported an underlying profit of $6.2 billion, £4.9 billion for the first quarter. And that compared with $2.1 billion dollars. £1.6 billion for the same period last year. And the reason for that has been nothing that BP has done. This is purely down to exceptional oil and gas trading. And what's happening is, of course, at the same time that BP and Shell, which announces its results later this week, as they're enjoying these huge profits because of soaring prices, What's happening is struggling households are not enjoying those soaring prices at all. So there have been even more calls for a one-off windfall tax, you know, taxing about 20% of those profits to help struggling households with their energy bills. So far, 
the government has said that that's not the way that they want to go. What they want is investment from BP, from Shell, into cleaner, greener technology, into security of supply. And certainly, as today we've had an announcement from the EU that they're looking to introduce a total ban on Russian oil imports over the next six months, that's just having another knock-on because we've seen Brent crude, the key international oil price benchmark, up about 3.5% today. And a lot of people really worried about what that will mean, not only for motorists when they're looking at filling up their tanks, but also for people looking to heat their homes, Laura. And that takes us neatly onto some of the sneaky tactics that energy companies have been using in hiking people's direct debits. Yes, so lots of people will have seen their direct debits that they pay for their electricity and gas. Um, They will see those increase. And that's as a result of the energy price cap that came in last month, um, the latest hike in it, which raised the average household dual fuel bill by about £700 a year. However, what's now being suggested is that some energy companies are increasing direct debits by more than they need to. So some people will have seen their direct debit leap up and will have been quite shocked by that, but will have assumed maybe that the energy company um, has a logic behind that and that that's the right price they should be on. But actually, what we're now talking about is that that might not be the case. And Ofgem, the regulator for the sector, um, and the government are looking into this and have asked energy companies to respond with um, what they're doing with direct debits. But Broadly, I think for people at home, what's useful to know is the price cap went up by about 54%. And that's for the average household. So it might have gone up by a little bit more or less than that, depending on your energy usage. But that's the kind of ballpark figure for how much your direct debit should have gone up by. So there are some caveats to that. Um, But if you are in credit, so you don't have a debt on your account with your energy company, you're paying by direct debit and you haven't switched your plan. So you were on the price cap before April and you're still on the price cap now, albeit now at the higher rate, then you shouldn't be seeing your direct debit costs increase by significantly more than that 55% figure. Um, Like I said, depending on your usage, it might be Um, slightly either side of that. But what we're hearing from some people is that their direct debits have gone up by 100 or 200%, which obviously when everyone's struggling with the cost of living at the moment, represents a massive cost increase and a lot of households won't be able to afford that. Um, Now, I talked about some of those caveats. There are some situations where you might see your direct debit increase by more than that kind of 54% figure that I talked about. Uh, And those scenarios are if you were previously on a cheaper fixed rate deal, and you've recently gone on to the price cap, then you will see your direct debit go up by so much more because you would have been on a much cheaper deal previously, and your costs will have to increase a lot now you're on the price cap. Um, The other reason would be that if you are well, on the price gap and you've chosen to fix, so you've chosen to uh, move on to a fixed rate deal, those are more expensive than the price cap at the moment. So in that situation, you also would see your direct debit increase by more than that price cap rise. Um, And then the final one is if you're in debt. So if when you log on to your account or you get your statement, your balance is a minus figure, that means you're in debt to the energy company and you will need to make up that shortfall. And the way that the energy company does that, rather than coming to you and saying you need to pay all of this money that you're in debt, they spread that across a period of time and they increase your direct debit uh, accordingly. So those are the scenarios where you might have seen a more dramatic increase in your direct debit. But if those three situations don't apply to you um, and your direct debit has gone up by far more than that, um, say kind of between 40 and 60%, I guess, um, then you should speak to your energy company and ask them for the logic of why they've increased it by so much more. Um, The only issue there is customer service levels at a lot of these energy companies have declined slightly. um, And that is obviously not the fault of the call centre staff who were there and 
probably not paid a great wage to be there, but um, lots of people are contacting their energy companies, whether that's to give meter readings, to talk about fixing their deals, or to talk about their direct debits at the moment. So it requires a little bit of perseverance, I think, to get through to these companies. But the government's looking into it. Ofgem, the regulator, is looking into it. They have the ability to fine companies if they find that they're not um, kind of in fair practices with these direct debits um, and those fines could be up to 10% of turnover so that could be quite a big hit for energy companies if they are being sneaky with these. And it is really make worth making sure that your um, meter reading is up to date. I mean as you say you know call centres have been absolutely inundated and I thought I was playing a bit of a blinder by getting my meter reading in and managed to get it in on the 31st of March before the change but they didn't get it down there was some obviously a huge number of um, people trying to get these meter readings in and I think I spent about an hour and a half just trying to get through to them because the meter reading that they had and the meter reading that I had was so entirely different that I was expecting to be charged a great deal more. So yeah, persevere if you can. Um, Sticking with personal finance news, we've had the latest figures out looking at how people are coping with the cost of living crisis. And unsurprisingly, but also worryingly, it shows more debt was taken on. Yeah, it does. So these are figures that come out from the Bank of England and they look across all of the kind of banks and building societies and different providers um, and look at how much we're saving, but also how much we're borrowing. Um, And it showed that in March, so that's the latest figures, there's a bit of a time lag on when these figures are published. Um, In March, we as a nation added another £800 million of money onto our credit cards, um, which means in the first three months of this year, we borrowed two billion pounds as a nation on our credit cards now that feels like a big figure but it's even bigger when we compare it to a year ago which was obviously very different circumstances um still kind of in lockdown pandemic times um but during that period uh, in those three months, we actually repaid 2.7 billion off our credit card bills. So not only are we not repaying, but we're actually now borrowing almost that amount. Um, and these figures just highlight how much the cost of living crisis is hitting households and how much people are having to turn to debt to um, just pay for their bills. Um, but we're kind of seeing a bit of a split nation, I would say, because there are still people who are saving money. So when we add together all of the money saved into bank and building society accounts and with um, national savings and investments, NSNI, um, during March, as a nation, we saved £6 billion in cash. And that's actually above the level that we were saving pre-pandemic, which is our bar for comparison, because the past couple of years have been so weird and so mired by pandemic and lockdowns, um, that's really skewed the figures. But yeah, even if we compare it to pre-pandemic times, that's higher than we were putting away there. So I think What we're seeing here is a bit of a divide in the nation of those that are really struggling and having to resort to debt and those actually that are are still doing okay um, and are still managing to put away money. Now, with everyone feeling the effect of of rising prices, whether or not you're able to cushion it with savings or not, uh, people will want to squeeze the most out of their finances and out of banks as possible. Laura, you're going to be looking at free ways that we can all use our accounts or banks or credit cards to get more out of them. Yeah, exactly. I think... um... During this cost of living crunch, it's quite difficult for people like you and I, Danny, who um, talk a lot about giving advice to people of how to save money. And some of these um, price increases, there's just no avoiding them um, other than, you know, buying less food or putting the heating on less. Um, So I thought what would be useful is looking at things we can get for free or money that we can make for free or um, different ways that we can use some of the essentials that we have to have like bank accounts um, and and get more from them so yeah this week I'm going to look at bank accounts that have perks attached to them so the first thing that I want to talk about is Danny when was the last time you switched your bank account I've been with the same bank, Laura, since I got my piggy bank when I was a kid. Is that terrible? I mean, 
that pains me to hear. But also you you and the rest of the nation, so many people don't switch their bank accounts. Now, what if I told you that I would give you £150 to go through a probably 20-minute process of switching your account somewhere else? Well, saying I haven't switched my bank account, I've not moved banks, but I have moved accounts within the last year because I did go through one of those well-financed check things with exactly that and got a whole load of perks because of it. Yeah, so um, if you switch to First Direct, that's the best deal at the moment for switching accounts. Uh, If you switch to First Direct, they will pay you £150 for switching to them. And so you you only caveat here are you can't already have a First Direct current account or an HSBC account because they're part of the same company. Uh, You have to switch your current account and then you have to pay in £1,000 and then you you don't have to leave that £1,000 in there. Um, And they will give you £150 for doing it. And the process of switching bank accounts used to be quite tortuous and um, involved, but now actually there's a switching service that carries across all of your direct debits um, and it makes the whole process much smoother. Um, So the next area I thought I'd look at is um, people that want cash back. So this is a really good way of getting money for nothing. Um, Lots of different bank accounts provide cash back. So this is where you spend money on your debit card um, and you get a little bit of money back each time you spend. Um, So uh, Chase, which is a US bank, we've talked about them on the podcast before. They're a new entrant to the market. Um, It's an app only bank. Um, So one for the digitally savvy, but you get 1% cash back on most of your purchases for the first year that you open the account. You just have to open the account on the app, activate that cash back, and then anything you buy or most things you buy, you'll get 1% back on. And the other perk with that bank account is that if you do have some savings, it's paying the top uh, rate for easy access cash savings at the moment, which is 1.5%. It also has one of these roundup features, which lots of digital banks have now, where um, it rounds up the amount that you spend. So say you spent £5.30. 60 on something um it would round up that 40p and it would put that into a separate savings account and you get five percent interest on that savings account which is pretty good obviously it's going to be on small sums but lots of people find those roundup features a really good way to save money without really realizing it um and then i thought i would just quickly cover packaged bank accounts so these are bank accounts that you have to pay for um so they're not free but you get a lot of perks with them. And for lots of people, it would be much more cost efficient to have these than paying separately for all of the perks. The caveat I will say on this is you need to make sure that you haven't already paid for some of the things that these are offering. So I'll talk through um, kind of the two best on the market, but they include things like mobile phone cover or travel insurance. You want to make sure that you haven't already paid for those services. Otherwise, you're going to be doubling up and paying for things that you don't actually need. Um, But Nationwide is a very good one. You pay £13 a month for the account, but included in that current account is covering all of your family's mobile phones. Um, You also get family travel insurance and you get breakdown cover in the UK and Europe. And if you're not already a Nationwide customer, they'll give you £125 if you switch your current account as well. Um, So those are good perks. If you need those things, just double check that your mobile phones aren't already covered under your house insurance and that you don't already have that kind of travel insurance and breakdown cover. And then another option is Virgin Money. They have a Club M account that also has travel insurance and it also has um, UK breakdown cover for your car. Um, And it has that mobile phone cover, but also includes things like laptops and tablets and costs slightly more at £14.50 a month. Um, And with that account, you get 2% interest on any cash savings up to £1,000. So that's good if you've got a little bit of money set aside. Yeah, free stuff is always good. The first time I got cash back from paying my bills, it was just like, hey, this is very exciting. It's Uh, money for nothing, so it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Always like that. Next up, Shares Deputy Editor Tom Sieber chatted to John Wallace, the Manager of Environmental Solutions Focused Fund Jupiter Green, to get his take on how investors avoid greenwashing, the impact of the current conflict in Ukraine on global net zero ambitions and the wider appeal of sustainable investing. Well, I'll start 
with a fairly sort of simple question just to, to get us started, um, John. So kind of in the, in the simplest terms and from the point of view of an investor, what, what is the kind of appeal of ESG investing and, and investing in sort of sustainable um, investments? Sure, uh, Tom, and thanks for having me. I suppose that's quite a big question. It covers quite a lot of ground. Uh, so ESG is, I think it's an umbrella term. It covers a lot of varying, sometimes overlapping, but ultimately quite it can be quite different investment approaches. So that means that the appeal is different depending on which approach is taken. Is taken. So for us on the Jupiter Green Investment Trust, the long-standing approach is to find companies that have an environmental solution at the core of their business. Uh, and what that is, I suppose, in, in alongside other types of approaches to ESG, it means it, it's a, a thematic opportunity, as we call it. Um, and that's a little bit different to, to say an ethical approach where you might want to be avoiding certain types of companies or activity. It's also different to ESG integration when you think about environmental, social, and governance factors as a way of of supplementing traditional investment research and placing that at the core of your investment process. I mean, for us, we, we think about ESG issues as part of our investment process, but the starting point is very different. We're looking at a relatively small subset of the equity market and looking for opportunities that we think are going to outgrow uh, the wider market um, because they have a solution that, that is going to be very much in demand if it isn't already in the wider world so that we can tackle environmental challenges at their core. Sure. And I mean, it, clearly it's, it's something that's increasingly moved into the mainstream, but what you've just talked about, I suppose, are the ways in which you kind of set yourself apart from, from perhaps, you know, like you said, um, managers that are just kind of integrating ESG into their, their sort of overall process. I think I mean, that's true. I think it's, it's important to differentiate. I mean, it's not a case of, of thinking about it as just ESG integration because that's actually a very complicated um, approach to investing, actually, in its own right. It's, it's not easy to do. But I think the outcomes and the starting point are very different. So, you, you, as I mentioned, we are not invested in, in the wider investment universe that we possibly could do. So, we don't tend to find the best opportunities in in banks or in healthcare companies or traditional tech. Um, we just don't tend to find environmental solutions companies in those sectors. So that means you have some biases naturally from what we invest in or would invest in compared to other types of funds. So it's really important to, to help sort of delineate, to break down the different approaches uh, so that ultimately our clients can understand what they should expect. And, and they can also find the sorts of funds that, that they are looking for. It might be combinations of funds, clearly. And that's something that is becoming, because it's becoming more mainstream, as you say, Tom, is becoming um, sort of front and centre of, of financial regulation, both in the UK and elsewhere. We'll see some big changes, I think, on that front. And part of that is just about providing that, that delineation between the different investment approaches. So it's really clear for, for clients what it is that they are investing in and helping them to decide how to invest their money. And for us, it's, as I said, it's something that we've been doing in this way for a, a very long period of time. So the investment strategy that we have here on the environment solutions, solutions side, so Jupiter has been running for uh, well over 30 years. So you know, nothing has changed in the way that we've been approaching this uh, I suppose the wider world around us and the demand for this type of investment approach has certainly has certainly changed certainly recently. So, if you had to kind of sum up in a nutshell exactly, you know, what the funds um, does and and how it does it, what, you know, how would how would you kind of define it? Sure. So, in a nutshell, we you know, we fundamentally believe, and it's, I guess it's a it's part of our investment philosophy that. As environmental challenges become more urgent and they become more central to global development, be it economic and social development, then that throws an opportunity up for companies that are really focused themselves on providing the real world solutions to their challenges. And that might be across a number of different areas of the, the economy. And, and for us, that means a number of different investment themes. But ultimately, the thing that links them is that that common sense of, of purpose where these companies are trying to tackle environmental challenges, which we think 
will, as a group of companies, outperform the wider market in the long term. Because if they don't, clearly if these businesses can't gain traction and continue to outgrow their marketplaces, then we don't really have much of a, of a chance of meeting you know, long-term big picture sustainability goals, be that climate change, be that the circular economy or how we avoid waste and, and design a house of our economy. Um, and start to address longer-term challenges that we think are only really in the foothills of, of tackling at, at scale, so biodiversity loss, uh, water challenges and, and related natural capital challenges that actually are, are very, very central to how our economy ultimately functions. So, so we think that, that in a nutshell, what we're offering for our clients is, is access to the solutions universe, if you like. We're looking to find the best uh, companies in our categories across our themes. And we have one eye on the future. With the Investment Trust, we have a more of a, a leaning towards innovative companies than we do on the other, other funds that we manage here on the, on the desk at Jupiter. And that means that we have a slightly longer-term focus on, on tackling parts of the economy that really have not made much progress at all when it comes to, to dealing with fundamental environmental um, challenges within their sector. Um, but in many cases, they are becoming absolutely front and centre of, of, of whether or not uh, you know, that or how that, those sectors would evolve. And therefore, we think that these solutions companies, so companies that have these technological solutions, to those challenges will be very well placed to, to outgrow uh, the markets that they're operating in. Is there a sector, you would, would you say, that it kind of encapsulates that best or, or kind of um, illustrates that best? So, well, I think, think of it this way. Maybe we have, uh, we have six themes. Um, we try to, to show that to clients so they can understand that there are multiple themes that we're trying to invest in. So clean energy is one. Uh, the circular economy is, is another, as I mentioned before. But there are others too on top of that, which I think is important to recognise that we're looking not just in, in singular uh, parts of the economy or singular industries and looking for, for opportunities there. We're looking across pretty much everything. I, I think in some pockets of where we, or pockets of those themes, there's actually been relatively low progress in areas like textiles, uh, in agriculture as well. If we compare it to the energy sector or mobility and, and, and how much we've been able to do this, there's a long way to go in terms of clean energy generation and alternative drive trains on cars. I mean, we've actually made quite, quite big steps, certainly relative to other sectors. And, and, and agriculture is one of those sectors, I would say, where actually progress is quite low in a sector which actually is completely fundamental to everything we have and everything we do and, and, and global living standards, but actually has some very significant environmental um, pressure points really um, that are already starting to become very evident in certain parts of the world and we expect that to continue uh, so in those sorts of end markets it's, it's where you're seeing sort of combination of, of regulatory pressures but also some some technologies which are being looked at and, and being um, adopted at increasing rates which can alleviate those those pressures and over time start to reverse and that's really exactly in a nutshell, what we're trying to offer our clients and our shareholders access to is that is that process of, of change in the real world and benefiting from that in the uh, in investment landscape. I mean, one of the um, side effects, I guess, of, of this um, these investment themes moving into the mainstream is that you, you've had more of kind of, I guess, what, what we call greenwashing, so companies masquerading as having a positive impact um, environmentally or, or kind of being more sustainable than they perhaps they actually are. Um, so I wonder, you know, how do investors avoid that? And also from your perspective, how do you ensure companies in the portfolio are genuinely committed to sustainability or genuinely sort of contributing to sustainability? So uh, that's a really good question. I think from fundamentally it's, it's what we live and breathe. So my background is, is in environmental technologies. It's what drove me to, to step into the investment uh, world, if you like, with a focus on these areas. So it's front and centre of how we think as a team and it's, it's all we do. I mean, we don't really think about, um, about companies that, that are doing things slightly less bad. You know, we're looking for really companies that are providing solutions. So understanding the ultimate challenges that we're looking to solve is key uh, to that. So it's a bit different for us, perhaps, compared to other funds where, you know, how a, fund, how a company can, can dress up its, its operations might be 
I mean, one thing, but the reality might be another. For us, actually, it's just a case of simply looking at what the business is doing, its products and services, and whether they tackle these, these challenges head on. Um, and ultimately, I think the challenge for us is, is making sure over time that we're, we are continuing to evolve what we consider to be a solution, because obviously there is lots of sort of intermediary steps, sort of transition steps. We used to think of hybrid vehicles, for example, as being, you know, in the wider world, you know, they were looked at as kind of a, a transition phase. Actually, then the electric vehicle came about much more quickly than, than many anticipated. So that's a good example of how actually the landscape does change. But you know, we, what we have a very firm view on is, is what the, the long-term future needs to look like. And I was talking sort of between 5, 10, 15 years. And actually the, the, the rate of progress um, that we're seeing uh, in some of the, the markets that we're investing in is actually um, quite encouraging um, in that sense. But ultimately it comes back to that point about what the products and the services are of the company. And that, that for us is relatively easy to pin down um, within that, that you know, that landscape of what we think an environmental, environmentally sustainable economy should look like and therefore uh, what the products and services we need to, to deliver that, what they look like and who can provide them. And because this area has become more fashionable, I guess valuations perhaps have become more stretched. I wonder how you, you deal with that um, as a problem. In terms of valuations? Yes, yeah, so I think that, that that's really the benefit we have here is that, that multi-thematic approach. So one of the things that we've been doing is, is I mean, you can expect to be doing on a continual basis is, is to recycle capital within the fund from, from companies and therefore from, from certain themes that might look to be a bit more overstretched into themes where the opposite is true. And we can do that really because we have that multi-thematic approach. So we're not a, a renewables company or a clean energy company, or neither are we a, you know, a green mobility or um, you know, electric vehicle focused fund. You know, we, we are a multi-thematic fund which has that flexibility, but while retaining that, that, I'd say, relatively unique focus on environmental solutions, but regardless of which sectors they're in. I think that, led, that then leads back to that challenge of, of thinking about what the future looks like and focusing on innovation, finding companies that we think are at the right stage of development, ultimately, um, so they are investable, but not necessarily um, too high a risk, but also on valuations that possibly reflect the fact they're not yet widely looked at in the marketplace. And that's that's a healthy place to be looking for companies. And we're seeing lots of uh, progress actually in sectors, as I mentioned earlier, that we haven't seen much progress in before. And that can only really be a good thing, obviously in the real world, absolutely, but also from an investment perspective as a, as a fund manager looking at the space, it underpins the value we're trying to, to add for our, our shareholders by, by continuing to find companies in uh, that can provide upside, you know, sustainable upside in terms of valuation. Um, you joined the fund in, in 2021 and became the sole fund manager shortly afterwards. What kind of have been the, the changes that you've, you've brought in since, since then? Well, I, actually, just to, to sort of qualify that, actually, I, I've been at Jupiter since 2009. Um, so I've worked on the strategy since 2014. Uh, but I did take on the sole manager of the fund uh, in, in early 2021 at that time what we were doing really was more of an evolution of the approach so for the trust given its relative size it's it's relatively small compared to the other funds that, that I manage it has a little bit of extra flexibility also it's a closed-ended structure as an investment trust so it has that kind of long-term capital approach so that meant that given those two factors fundamentally that meant that it lends itself really to to looking inside towards the longer term and to smaller companies too so uh, what we've been doing over that time period, and before that as well, to be fair, um, sort of the latter stages of 2020, is to pivot the portfolio a little bit more towards smaller cap, um, yeah, extremely exciting companies and sectors that, as I mentioned, have not done a lot. Uh, so they're, they're ripe for innovation and disruption, and, and some of the companies that we've added to the portfolio in that time period are seeking to do exactly that and actually delivering on that. Um, in the real world in terms of their operations. Um, so it's great to be able to watch how they're, they're progressing quickly. In some cases, that's not necessarily reflected in terms of market valuation. So the premium, if you like, on, on longer duration growth companies, uh, certainly in the year to date, so in the first quarter of this year, 2022, has um, come under a lot of pressure just given the, the wider macro environment. But actually, in terms of operations for, for many of these businesses or this portion of the portfolio that we would call innovators 
has has actually shown considerable progress, and that's really encouraging. To I think you can expect us to continue to to add either some new names in the portfolio that fit that 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 life cycle stage, if you like, that earlier stage, but also adding to the companies that we already have exposure to that, that are a bit further down the track now, but are also trading on a, a more attractive premium. Sorry, a more attractive um, valuation. So. So in a sense, that gives you, a, a, I guess, a snapshot of what we've been doing with the trust over that time period, but also um, what we've been seeking to do uh, since the, the middle, I would say, of 2020. Sure. And I mean, yeah, you mentioned there that kind of in the short term, perhaps, you know, this area of the market has, has been negatively affected by kind of wider um, factors. I mean, just turning to another sort of kind of more recent event, I guess, with the the war in Ukraine and the impact that might have on energy policy. Do you think there's a risk that could undermine countries' net zero ambitions? And does that have any kind of um, implications for the portfolio? So the energy landscape absolutely has has huge implications for the portfolio, uh, both good and bad, I would say. I, I think we've never known, I've never known, I've been in the obviously investing in this landscape since 2009. I've never known a period like we have at the moment. Um, the changes that we've been seeing predate actually the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and uh, but they but they certainly have been exacerbated by that. Um, and you've seen energy policy certainly in Europe changing almost overnight, I would say, um, and rightly so. I think there's a real focus now in the marketplace on where we get our energy from, what it is, um, how secure it is, and, and you know, more to the point, who it's coming from. Um, and that, again, that's absolutely right. I think in the near term, actually, you will see winners and losers in terms of you know, the net zero ambition. I think um, we have a kind of an all of the above approach to getting to getting energy, both in the UK and wider Europe. Um, but I think longer term, actually, this is the sort of market environment, the, you know, the circumstances come about, obviously, are completely horrific, and we wish for them to end. Um, but I do think the energy landscape has changed irrespective of that, you know, for, for, for permanently for good, actually. And I think um, what we will see is a similar uh, period as to what we had in the 1970s with the energy crises that we had then in the 70s, really later on in the period, where you saw uh, volatile energy prices, but also higher energy prices ultimately for, for a protracted period. And we think that the analogies with that period are growing by the day, actually. Um, and then what came out of that was were both supply side and demand side changes. So where we get energy from the supply side changed you know, reasonably significantly. Uh, it changed within fossil fuels, but not necessarily outside of that. We also saw the the the, the green shoots, if you like, of the renewables industry in the 1970s. That's when a lot of companies that that have become you know global success stories today. That's when they actually dated back to. Um, some of which we still have some exposure to in the portfolio. But also we saw significant change on the demand side. So, so how much energy we use, how we use it, et cetera. So energy efficiency became um, really the order of the day around that time period. It changed the landscape in certain sectors for good, at least until recently. So in the automotive space, that's when you saw you know, efficient uh, technologies from Japanese car companies making huge inroads into the US market, for example that they haven't been able to do in all the decades before that. Um, so we, we see similar cases here, actually, where you're going to see a step change in the rate of, of uptake of energy-efficient technologies, some of which are very well-established already, but still quite low in terms of uptake. That's a very big opportunity for us. Um, and that is probably quite widely overlooked, actually, in equity markets at the moment. You know, we've seen the near-term reaction for clean energy companies that, that positively um, impacted performance for the trust. We added it back a little bit of exposure to that theme at the start of this year, given how much we felt that was how much bad news is really baked into valuations. And we obviously take a longer term view, and we felt that, that now was the time to add you know, incrementally back to that, that theme. Um, and that has worked you know, reasonably well, given the, need, the, the near term reactions to what we've seen in Russia and Ukraine and the need for, for low carbon sources of, of secure and reliable energy, um, which we think that. That renewables can, can ultimately deliver. 
But what we haven't seen in the marketplace is the same sort of reaction for energy efficiency types of solutions. So we've actually been adding more to that, that theme recently. For us, that means that's our green buildings and industry theme principally. Uh, and we've added some, some of the allocation back to that theme. That's our, our largest current weighting, actually. So, you know, near, nearer term, I think, will it undermine net zero ambitions? I, I arguably, yes, I think, um, in this current environment. But actually, I think, given how much the, the solutions for, for delivering net zero have evolved, both on the, the demand side and the supply side of the energy equation, actually, I think the time period we're in now actually will, will actually lead to more of a step change in progress towards low carbon solutions longer term. Beyond sort of the areas we've we've already sort of touched on, are there any particular sort of technologies or companies or sectors that you're particularly excited by at the moment or you see sort of potential that perhaps isn't being fully appreciated by the market? So, I mean, beyond the energy space, where, as I mentioned, on, the, on that uh, demand side of the equation, uh, where I think there is a, the market is, is not really pricing in how much uh, companies in particular will, will seek to reduce energy energy price exposure by using less energy fundamentally. Um, beyond those areas, there's lots of individual pockets of the market that are affected by that. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned in, uh, innovation in agriculture recently, uh, or, or at the top of the, the, the call here, and actually, you know, we're seeing solutions in the near term and the medium term that have got really quite big growth um, categories, I would say. Um, so tackling the, the embedded carbon, the embedded um, negative impact that the agricultural sector has on, on global warming, um, but also long-term thinking about how that sector can reduce its impact from a biodiversity perspective and, and widen natural capital. So that is, that is all forms of the environment, really. Um, and that is absolutely necessary. That's not just a nice-to-have. That really does need to happen. And I think we're starting to see some more of a medium and longer-term growth opportunity in companies that can, can really do that. And that's ultimately about providing alternatives uh, to the traditional way we've been doing things. That, I think, is quite exciting to us. The, the, we'll be very selective in terms of where we invest and how we invest in that space. Uh, but it, it's an area that I think has been quite quite significantly overlooked, I would say, for, for, um, for a number of years, not just in the investment market, but also actually in the agricultural sector itself. And I think that's starting to really change, you know, notably um, more quickly than we probably anticipated even, even a year ago. That's everything we've got for this week. So thanks very much for joining us. Um, we've had a question in about broker notes. So Dan is going to be covering that off next week. Um, and if you have other areas you want us to delve into or explain, um, then just send us an email to podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we will definitely cover it in a future episode. And I'm going to go off and uh, check about whether or not it's worth switching my bank account, Laura. Uh, <laughs> in the meantime, don't forget to like us, review us and subscribe on your podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.